Hello, everybody, and welcome to First Impressions, the podcast where we discuss our love of Jane Austen and give a big middle finger to everybody out there who makes fun of us for it. I am joined today by my dear friend Maggie. Hi, Kristen. Hi, everybody. Good to be back. (laughs) And Maggie's going to give you a little background on the novel we're going to be discussing today, which is Northanger Abbey. Yes, we are talking about Jane Austen's probably shortest novel, you'd say, Northanger Abbey. It was the first of her novels to be sold for publication, but it was actually not published until after her death. It was published in December 19... I'm sorry, December... Yes, December 1917. (laughs) It was published in December 7... God, I forgot when it was published. (laughs) It was uh, was 1817. Yeah, you're going to cut this out, right? (laughs) Yeah, sure. It was was published in December of 1817 along with Persuasion was part of a uh, four-volume set. And the fascinating thing about Northanger Abbey is actually the story of when and why it got published when it did. So, yeah, this the, this, the story of this novel is, is great. We've given you a lot to think about with regard to Austen's masterworks, Pride and Prejudice and Mansfield Park. And this is shifting into a different gear. Because this novel was written when she was young, still young enough to believe that the world held for her a Tom Lefroy, a man she could love and marry. And she had been disillusioned once. Um, her love, Tom, Tom Lefroy, had been sent away because of the financial unsuitability of the match. So she understood the world in that respect. Um, but she had been to Bath, England. Which is sort oh, of... Oh, Kristen, I think you mean Bath. Oh, Bath. You have to say Bath. Nobody understands you in the UK. I'm sorry, where are you going? <laughs> sorry, where? Bath. <laughs> We're Americans. I'd like to have a return ticket to Bath. <laughs> We're going to take the water. Going to Bath. <laughs> <laughs> Don't these people bathe here? Why do they have a whole town called Bath? It's an amazing place that a lot of people in Austin's time went for health reasons. There is a hot spring there. I believe it's a hot spring. It was a Roman bath, and the ruins are still there today. But in any case, it was a very gay bathing place, as they Yes, they thought that drinking iron water would definitely improve your health. (laughs) And um, I I could be wrong. I believe they actually took the water in that they submerged themselves into it as well. And they they thought it could cure things, but it also had a very hop-in social life for a place outside of London. And Jane Austen, as a young woman, went there. And she went there at a time where she was feeling her oats. She was feeling young, and she was dancing, and she was having a good time. And going to Bath um, was the inspiration for the setting of this novel, Northern Abbey. And it's important for us to understand this, this, because the rest of Austen's novels were finished and published at a time where she was much more worldly, in a time where she was in her mid to late 30s, and she was a spinster, and she had had a ton of experience Uh-oh. with life. Wait, she's a spinster in her mid-30s? <laughs> yeah, I'm in trouble. <laughs> unfortunately, uh, that was the way. Uh, she had pretty much accepted that that most likely would not be her, her lot in life to get married. And um, by that time, I do think... As a normal human being, she did have a little bit of bitterness about that. It doesn't come out to me in any of the novels 
except for the last novel, Persuasion, which is coming full circle, also set in Bath, where she had lived for many years and progressively gotten poorer and poorer and seen her hopes sort of diminish. So the view of Bath in Persuasion is a very dim one. She does not like it. She hates a lot of things about it. The white glare of Bath, Bath in the sunshine. However, That novel, Persuasion, was packaged with Northanger Abbey. So in this package deal, we get two different uh, views of the the town. And that's just one of the many fascinating things about it. But anyway, knowing Austen's mindset when she wrote Northanger Abbey, her being a young woman and full of, you know, hope, I think helps us understand it because the tone of that novel is very, very hopeful and very youthful. I loved it, too. It's one of, it's the only one of her novels that I had yet to read when we started doing this podcast. So it was the only one I hadn't read yet. And I really enjoyed it. It felt very kind of light and breezy, especially coming off Mansfield Park. It definitely, (laughs) it just, I don't want to say it was like Jane Austen chiclet because the whole point of our podcast is to kind of fight against that characterization of her work. But it definitely just felt, it's it's a simple story, I want to say, not simple in terms of, not smart, but simple in terms of when I tell you the plot, it's going to kind of all play out. It's It follows a 17-year-old girl and kind of her first time out in the world. And it just, I remember what it was like to be a teenager and it just felt very light and breezy. It was kind of a nice change of pace. Um, it is. And uh, Austin really admired another writer called Fanny Burney, and she wrote a novel, Evelina, where the main character is also very sort of totally ignorant, even social Wide-eyed and innocent. (laughs) And I think that, um, as Maggie's introduction of her book actually explicitly says, um, you can see the echoes of um, Fanny Burney's work. And, you know, it's just, it's clearly, when you take it and compare it to all of other Austin's other works, I think it's fair to say it's less complex. Yes. And it's fair to say it feels a little bit more like Chicklet, and she probably meant it to. Well, yeah. And um, she was she was still testing her powers and her talents, and one of the most fascinating things about this book is that she often digresses to talk about novels, and she gives this meta-context for novels. In Northanger Abbey, she's trying to send up the gothic conventions that were always used ad nauseum in the gothic pot boilers that she surely loved to read mm-hmm. as a teen. And um, it, this book gives us permission to love novels and to love cheesy novels and to yeah. love silly, over-the-top love stories. And I love that here we are talking about our persecution from people who are putting Austin down as chiclet. And she even wrote a book where she says, <laughs> even if it's chiclet, hey, it's okay. We love our novels, you know, and um, it's really positive. And she's thinking about what it means to be a writer um, and sort of justifying herself in a way, saying, yes, I can do this. I do have something to offer mm-hmm. the world. And it is not just a novel. It is um, the best and worst of human nature on display in a witty style, and and she celebrates that. Exactly. I mean, you can't live on Ulysses alone. (laughs) You can't only read Herman Melville. You know, you need to kind of take a break sometimes. And, okay, confessions. I love Jane Austen. I also love cheesy fantasy YA. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, Kristen is also, not only is she a Jane Austen scholar, she's something of a Harry Potter scholar as well. <laughs> that's right. So that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> uh, but I, I have many friends where we just eat up YA, like it's going out of style. And I love it. I'm not ashamed of it. 
And it has its place. It's distracting. It's amusing. And Austin took that form and melded her knowledge of the world and worldliness into it. So it's a book that works on so many levels because she tells us a real story. And then she tells us what the gothic novel would have Mm -hmm. included. And then she laughs at it, you know, at the conventions. And at the same time, gives us permission to laugh and still to enjoy the novel. It's, It's an achievement in that way. It's a great achievement in that way. And when you compare it, when you actually go back and read some of these books that she mentions, and even if you read Evelina, you'll see the maturity in Austin's work at that time in a very clear way. It's just so much more cogent and possible and and, and um, natural a story that she tells. Mm-hmm. And um, it also ties back into the point she's trying to make again and again in her novels, which is people get married for money and is BS. When you, what I thought was so fascinating about reading Evelina, and we will get to a plot synopsis of Northanger Abbey, <laughs> but I'll just say this one thing to whet your appetite. In Evelina by Fanny Burney, every time this young, stupid, you know, uh, naive girl, not stupid, but just very naive and innocent girl, every time she goes out into the world and gets herself into trouble and a scrape, it's always a man grabbing her and being like, hey, girly, and trying to grab her into a corner and essentially assault her. Is it her. Ryan Gosling? Or <laughs> Sadly, no. Hey, girl. <laughs> hey, girl. No, it was, it's always men trying to mistreat her sexually. Every time Catherine Moreland, the heroine of Northanger Abbey, gets herself into a scrape, it's people who think she has money and are predatory after her because of her money. Mm-hmm. So Hodgson is saying, like, yes, that's the romance. Sure, everybody's, got, like, like, getting raped in pop, you know, popular gothic romances, but, you know, metaphorically or literally. But here's the reality. is like, yes, we are getting taken for a ride, but it's not only about sexuality. And, uh, yeah, so, with that, uh, you know, on that note, would you like to give us a synopsis? Sure. So I am totally cribbing this from the Wikipedia entry, which I'm sure a lot of you are now rolling your eyes. But let me explain. As we're recording this, we're coming off Thanksgiving. So <laughs> right. Kristen and I have both whined and dined ourselves so much the past couple days that it's just exhausting. So please bear with me. I think it's pretty good. I will try to edit it a bit because it is a little long. But I think we do need to have a plot summary yeah. before we get into the details. Or those of you who haven't read it will be hopelessly confused. <laughs> so here is the plot of Northanger Abbey. 17-year-old Catherine Moreland is one of 10 children of a country clergyman. Although a tomboy in her childhood by the age of 17, she is a training for a heroine and is excessively fond of reading gothic novels. Catherine is invited by the Allens, her wealthier neighbors, to accompany them to visit the town of Bath and partake in the winter season. Although initially the excitement of Bath is dampened by her lack of acquaintances, she is soon introduced to a clever young gentleman, Henry Tilney, with whom she dances and converses. Henry does not appear in the subsequent subsequent week, and not knowing whether or not he has left Bath for good, she wonders if she will ever see him again. Through Mrs. Allen's old school friend, Miss Thorpe, she meets her daughter, Isabella, a vivacious and flirtatious young woman, and the two quickly become friends. Mrs. Thorpe's son, John, is also a friend of Catherine's older brother, James, at Oxford, where they are both students. James and John arrive. Isabella and Jane spend a lot of time together. Catherine becomes acquainted with John, who I'm sure we'll talk about. He's a total jerk. (laughs) But then Henry Tilney returns to Bath with his sister Eleanor, who is sweet, elegant, and respectable. And Catherine meets their father, imposing General Tilney. 
Uh, the Thorps are not happy that Catherine is hanging out with the Tilneys because they perceive Henry as a rival for Catherine's affections. Catherine tries to maintain her friendships with both the Thorps and the Tilneys, though John Thorpe continuously tries to sabotage her relationship with the Tilneys. Isabella and James, uh, so just to recap, Isabella is now Catherine's BFF, and James is her brother. They become engaged. Uh, the father approves of it. He has a little bit of money he can throw their way, but they have to wait until they can marry. Isabella is not quite happy with that. She believes that the Morelands are quite wealthy, and she pretends to Catherine that she's merely dissatisfied that they must wait so long. James leaves town, and Isabella then starts to flirt with Captain Tilney, who is Henry's older brother. The flirtation continues even when James returns, much to the latter's embarrassment and distress. So then at this point, the Tilneys invite Catherine to stay with them for a few weeks at their home, Northanger Abbey. Northanger Abbey. Catherine, in accordance with her novel reading, expects the Abbey to be exotic and frightening. Henry teases her about this, but as it turns out, Northanger Abbey is pleasant and decidedly not gothic. With a capital G. (laughs) Not gothic. I believe she comments on how there is something of the gothic about the windows. (laughs) However, the house includes a mysterious suite of rooms that no one ever enters. Catherine learns that they were Mrs. Tilney's who died nine years earlier. Catherine decides that since General Tilney does not seem to be affected by the loss of his wife, he may have murdered her or even imprisoned her. Uh, So basically, she tries to, she goes sneaking around the house, Catherine does, and she gets totally busted by Henry. (laughs) Yeah. And he's basically saying, what you doing? And he knows that she loves novels. So he puts it together by her looking all guilty that she had this thought. And he basically tells her, girl, look at where you are. (laughs) Do you think people really do that? And she, of course, is very ashamed, and she cries, and she just feels awful. Uh, Realizing how foolish she has been, Catherine comes to believe that though novels may be delightful, their content does not relate to everyday life. Henry lets her get over her shameful thoughts and actions in her own time and does not mention them to her again. So at this point, James, Catherine's brother, writes to her and basically says he's he's written to her that the engagement to Isabella is off. Isabella has been constantly flirting with Captain Tilney. He's not going to have it. Catherine is terribly disappointed, realizing what a dishonest person Isabella is. Uh, The general, which is their father, goes off to London, and so they're all really happy that he's gone because he's a total jerk. But then he comes back, and mysteriously, Eleanor comes to Catherine one night and tells her that she has to leave. Uh, She was supposed to stay many more weeks, and Eleanor says that the general has forgotten an earlier appointment for the family. But basically, he's putting her out on the street at 6 a.m. the next morning. Well, I think it's 7 (laughs) a.m. And she's got to GTFO. Yeah. Uh, And this is, of course, she's only 17. Right. And she has to travel 70 miles back to her home alone. It's very shocking. Uh, she gets home. Everything's fine. And I think we'll talk about this a lot, but it says a lot about Catherine's char- character change that the idea of the trip doesn't actually bother her at all. Mm-hmm. She travels 11 hours in her carriage, travels 70 miles alone, gets home, and then she just kind of bums around because she's really sad. And so she's horrified and depressed because she's in love with Henry. But then Henry shows up. He was shocked at the behavior of his father. He explains that General Tilney was told by the Thorpes that Catherine was very rich, and so that was why he said it was okay for her to hang out with them. And when he learned the truth, he felt that he had been deceived by her, and that's why he tossed her out of the house. Uh, Henry admits that he loves Catherine. Catherine admits that she loves Henry, and basically it all ends happily ever after. Yeah, and um, the general turns out to not have murdered his wife. No, oh yeah, in case you were wondering. (laughs) But still... 
uh, be a villain in a more banal everyday sense in that he wants to keep two people apart because of money. Yeah, that's the real villainy. Like, Austin yeah. sort of is like, you know, you can be a total asshole and not be a murderer. It's a comedy of errors in that everyone thinks that Catherine is rich. when She's not poor, uh, but, I mean, she just comes from a very, you know, a country family. They have ten children. Right. Um, they're not poor by any means, but they're certainly not wealthy. The uh, the squire, you know, of the uh, the neighborhood is wealthy and has no children, and that's Mr. Allen, right? He's the one who takes Catherine to Bath. And then when, every, when everybody <laughs> sees that her hanging around with him, his wealth is being exaggerated also, and everyone's like, in the, in the adaptation, the line is, when the old man pops off, she'll be one of the richest women in the country. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, she's always very well-dressed because Mrs. Allen has that uh, harmless delight in being fine, meaning dressed up. She is obsessed with clothing. Yeah, that's pretty much all she talks about. Um, and she's a funny character. There are a lot of funny side characters in this book, just like with all of Austen's works. Well, let's talk about Catherine first. Let's she is our heroine. Uh, yes. <laughs> no one who had seen Catherine Moreland in her infancy would have supposed her born to me be an heroine. That is the first uh, clever and funny line. Um, first, the first line of the whole book. And Austin has these amazingly snappy openers, as we all know. Um, and she takes us through all of the things that Catherine Moreland did not do. She did not grow a rose bush or train a field mouse or do any <laughs> of the things that gothic heroines... Okay, and let's be clear, like, gothic heroine, heroines in gothic novels are all Mary Sue's of the worst variety. Well, they're basically also, like, Disney princesses. Yes, they're, they're all gorgeous. And it, um, it, it describes Catherine's first entry into to social life at the, the lower rooms, the assembly rooms in Bath. And we're told that she was not once called a divinity by anybody, if you can believe it. You know, you're reading a novel and nobody is saying the heroine is drop-dead gorgeous. But two men do pronounce her in her hearing to be a pretty girl. And that's all she needs. Um, and is that the part where I was trying to find this um, while you were speaking because I wasn't listening to you? Uh, <laughs> uh, there's a part where it's that, you know, she's called what, like, rather pretty or something like that. And it says you, you can't understand how much that means to a young lady who has never been called attractive at all. So the words, you know, kind of pretty like, <laughs> yeah. means a lot. Right. <laughs> Right, so it's a very, um, you know, unpropitious start for our fair heroine who, um, and even even by the end, she hasn't really lived up to those heroic ideals. When she comes home, when she gets kicked out of the general's house and she comes home, uh, Austin actually says, it's so embarrassing for me as her biographer <laughs> to have to write that she comes home in a rented post chase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there are so many funny asides. But um, as I said, one of the things that Austin does throughout is it's very meta because she keeps referencing that they're, you're reading a novel. Um, but she also justifies novel reading, as, as we've said. So um, I'll just pull up a cute little passage where she, uh, she's talking about novels. Oh, we haven't talked about Henry Tilney at all. But one of oh, the Tilney. things that shows that Henry Tilney is a good egg, certainly by Austen's standards, is that Catherine Moreland um, drops that she is reading a novel. 
And then she's embarrassed. She's like, but you probably don't read novels. I'm so embarrassed. And he's like, do not imagine that you can cope with me in a knowledge of Julia's and Louisa's. I have read thousands and thousands of novels. And it turns out he's like a huge fangirl for... This is like that moment when you are texting with someone (laughs) um, that you're going to go out with and you make like a Harry Potter joke and they're like girl, I know Hedwig. And you're like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) He's as big a nerd as I I know. And uh, she says this. She's talking about Catherine and Isabella, the BFF, newly acquired best friend. And she says what they do together, sometimes they shut themselves up together and read novels. Yes, novels. For I will not adopt that ungenerous and impolitic custom so common with novel writers of degrading by their contemptuous censure the very performances to the number of which they are themselves adding. Um, Apparently was a convention for if a heroine of a novel picks up a novel in the book to be like, oh, and turn over its insipid pages with disgust because it was... you know, even to this day, people were like, oh, it's not an intellectual endeavor for you to read a novel. And um, Austin keeps keeps us on our toes by saying, like, you know, novels are great. And Henry Tilney loves novels. And don't lie, men. You love novels. Even John Thorpe, who's a guy... I was going to say, we should compare and contrast uh, John Thorpe and Henry Tilney's reaction when they find out... Oh, that's right. ...that she likes novels. Oh, genius. Because even John Thorpe, when he founds out, finds out she likes novels, he goes, oh, I never read that stuff. And mm-hmm. immediately Catherine is embarrassed. But then he says, I read The Monk the other day, though, which is a really <laughs> horrid, <laughs> really horrid novel. And um, he's, it's just pretensions, this literary pretension uh, to not like novels, when, of course, everybody likes novels. Yeah, he's... He's such a poser, right? He, oh, novels, blah, blah, blah. But you know, I did read this wonderful one by Radcliffe. But then he does it. He gets all of the authors mixed up with who wrote what. And Catherine's just like, oh, my God, this guy. (laughs) I wish Catherine Moreland had a Tumblr account. I think it would be kind of amazing. Um, But Henry Tilney is like, yeah, I love novels. You don't know how much I love novels, let me tell you. Um, And it kind of reminds me, I... um, there's this fantastic website. It's called smartbitchestrashybooks.com. <laughs> and it is all about um, women who love romance novels. And the point of this podcast is that, you know, we're sick of people saying that Jane Austen is just romance novels. And But when we say that, it's, we're not trying to shit all over romance novels. Right. We were just saying we all have our pleasures that we like to read with books. Um and there's certainly nothing wrong with the romance genre. God knows I have definitely read some. If you just read <laughs> good ones, right? That's, That's the point. Right. So I encourage you to check out this website, Smart Bitches Trashy Books. It's hilarious. They do great essays, book reviews. And it's basically a community where it's smart women who own that they love this genre. And the gothic novel of Austen's time, I think, is very similar to a kind of romance novel of our time, maybe something akin to the Outlander series, which is very involved and kind of epic, but it definitely has that romance element. So that's my aside on, there's nothing wrong with reading novels, gothic novels, romance novels, anything like that. Whatever you, whatever floats your boat. I did not know about that website that you um, just told us about. My website is called My Book Shame. <laughs> no, when you say my website, uh, the one that I go to for oh, the same okay. reason. My, my bad. Not it's not one that I own, but it's one that I go to. 
uh, to read about women talk about trashy books, mm-hmm. and they're very smart women, and it's the same kind of deal. And um, that's erotica, by the way. So <laughs> don't judge me. Um, but it's the same. It's the same kind of deal. And they talk a lot about. They have. A, they have to do a lot of soul searching. Like, does this mean I'm a bad feminist? Yeah. <laughs> Does the spanking, the fact that I enjoy that, does that mean that I'm a horrible horrible person? And then we all come to the conclusion that that's what feminism means. It means we can like whatever we want and we don't have to feel ashamed. You can make the choice. Right. Anyway. What were, we talking talking about? what were we talking about? Uh, well, let's talk about Henry Tilney, because I always want to talk about Henry Tilney. Let's talk about Henry Tilney. Well, we didn't finish talking about Catherine, but... We'll get, it, it, we'll we, get to her. In talking about him, we'll yeah. get to her. Ben. Henry Tilney is my favorite... Austin romantic lead. Um, I love I love Mr. Darcy. I love Colin Firth. The tall, dark, and handsome thing, and the like, proud, silent, needs to be taught about love thing. That's cool. <laughs> I dig it. But Henry Tilney, I adore. By far the best hero. Um, I actually married a Henry Tilney, as we have you mentioned. You did. It's true. Past. It's true. He's not quite as loquacious as Henry Tilney <laughs> in the book. But Kevin, who our listeners are acquainted with, uh, is definitely Henry Tilney-esque. It doesn't hurt that he's portrayed so well in the uh, 2007 adaptation by an actor called J.J. Field, who Maggie <gasps> absolutely loves. And I he do. encapsulates Henry Tilney perfectly He nails to it. Me. He nails it. Because he is so lighthearted, affable, funny. As Aus- as we know, Austin Prize is the ability to be a great conversationalist, and boy, he is. He is so funny. And um, but he's also the, has this young charm to him, and he allows himself to be teased and and sort of laughed at a little bit, at, at least in the adaptation, a little less in the book. Um, but yeah, um, it's a great adaptation. Well, Henry Tilney is like the adorkable girl in rom-coms now, where no one really exists like that, but they're just so perfect, <laughs> yeah. and you love them. <sighs> I just love him so much. But there is a streak of, um, you know, 19th century misogyny. He lectures. He mansplains. Yeah, b- baked, <laughs> baked into this book, and it's almost as if Austin sort of... Th- one of the things that I, I've had to process in this book is that Austin laughs at Catherine Moreland, the heroine, mm-hmm. and makes jokes at her expense. And th- that's okay, because we're recognizing that she's sort of a young, ignorant, dumb girl, and so were we all, and hey, it's funny, and we grew out of it, as Catherine Moreland mm-hmm. does. But um, there's a passage where Catherine Moreland and Henry Tilney are getting acquainted. They go on a walk in the countryside, and he starts to talk to her about... Uh, landscapes and painting pictures of landscapes and yes. the, the, this idea they had of the picturesque what was picturesque and how to frame um, a painting so that it was picturesque you know and Catherine Catherine Moreland knows nothing about it and Austin says the advantages of natural folly in a beautiful girl have already been set forth by the capital pen of a sister author that's a Fanny Burney in Evelina um, and Austin says here to her treatment of this subject I will only add in justice to men Though to the larger and more trifling part of the sex, imbecility in females is a great enhancement of their personal charms. There is a portion of them too reasonable and too well informed themselves to desire anything more in a woman than ignorance. Um, And Catherine did not know her own advantages, did not know that a good-looking girl with an affectionate heart and a very ignorant mind (laughs) cannot fail of attracting a clever young man unless circumstances are particularly untoward. Um, and so Catherine laments her lack of knowledge 
and Henry is very much in love with the sound of his own voice and mansplains it all, and when they get to the top of the hill, she voluntarily rejects the entire city of Bath as worthy to make part of a landscape, and he's delighted by mm-hmm. his pupil, you know, and um, there's a very famous, very famous line in the book, um, it is so often quoted, it is, a woman especially, if she have the misfortune of knowing anything, should conceal it as well as she can. This is very much the advice of, now if you want a, ma- a boy to like you, honey, you have to act dumb and let him yeah. take the lead and be the smart one. This is still something that women fight in the workplace today, mm-hmm. where we realize that if we contradict a man openly, um, as they so often do to each other with no consequence... Uh, that we will be labeled sort of bitchy and too aggressive and too assertive. Not every man. I'm a hashtag not all men. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying. Um, that uh, it's not socially, it's less acceptable to do that to a man. So this is a, a very th- a thing that still exists today. Um, men like it, not all men, <laughs> like it when they feel smart and they can feel powerful. And he does. She makes him feel that way. And he likes that very much. Um, And we'll talk more about it, and I don't want to be a downer about it or anything, but one of the things that's troubling for, you know, that's harder for me to, you know, work with in Mansfield Park, I mean, in Northanger Abbey, is that I have a hard time believing that Henry Tilney will be happy for the rest of his life with Catherine Moreland, because even though she sort of matures by the end, she is certainly not on his level Humor-wise, she can't. She doesn't have sparkling conversation. She's still confused by a lot of witty things that he says. She totally does not get his point. Um, well, and, uh, she is. She is the quintessential kind of. I need someone to protect me mm-hmm. from the dangers of the world. Type of heroine, right? Where he has, and this is in in the adaptation, the Andrew Davies adaptation, which I think is brilliant. I really encourage you to watch it if you don't think that you can get into the novel or have time. Watch the movie; it's ninety minutes. It's fantastic. Catherine has these fantasies of gothic novels where she is being threatened by swordsmen, and Henry Tilney runs in and protects her. And she kind of appeals to him in that way, too, I'm sure, where she's this vulnerable, naive. She needs his strong hand. I'm about to drop something on you, and I don't want it to kill the mood of the love we have for this book. But um, as I said before, Catherine can sometimes be as dumb as a box of rocks. Do you remember how we said that the end of every Austen novel is a doppelganger of the beginning of another Austen novel? Mm -hmm. I think that Henry Tilney getting married to Catherine Moreland might actually be... Don't say it! Don't say it! No. Okay, my bad. (laughs) Oh, no. Catherine Moreland is not Mrs. Bennet. Do not even say it, Kristen. A gentler... No! No, Okay, here's the thing. I see the point. Okay, I'm a Catherine Moreland. Apparently, I'm now a Catherine Moreland apologist. (laughs) I did not come into this thinking, but when she said Dumber Than a Box of Rocks, it really got my goat. Oh, no. I apologize. Um, so, okay, two things I want to mention for, before I get into Catherine Moreland and why I like her. The scene with the uh, explaining what makes a good prospect, explaining what makes a good painting, you know, the, the city of Bath is awful, blah, blah, blah. This one tree is much better. It really, to me, echoed Mansfield Park, where we talked about how it's a Pygmalion story and how Edmund basically... Um, shapes Fanny into the ideal woman. And this, to me, is not as egregious as that. It's not as creepy. It's not as weird. Uh, but it does have that kind of flavor to it. It's like, let me explain to you how this all works. And she's, oh, 
oh, I never thought that before. You know, you're so smart, Henry. Uh, anyway, I just thought that was kind of an interesting parallel and maybe the beginning of that kind of theme. Um, another thing I wanted to mention is you were saying you didn't think that Henry would be happy with her. And at the end of the book, I don't know if I can find it. I didn't foolishly didn't mark it. Um, Jane Austen, as the narrator, explains why Henry actually loves her. And it basically says that he felt kind of, there's nothing more attractive than someone who loves you, right? So Henry basically knows that Catherine loves him. And so he loves her in response mostly because of that, which I think <laughs> is fair. That's, it says it grows out of gratitude, yes, I believe. I have it flagged. It, um, and it's so cute the way that it is expressed. Um, here it is. This is right after they get engaged. She was assured of his affection, and that heart in return was solicited, which perhaps they pretty equally knew was already entirely his own. For though Henry was now sincerely attached to her, though he felt and delighted in all the excellencies of her character and truly loved her society, I must confess that his affection originated in nothing better than gratitude, or in other words, that a persuasion of her partiality for him had been the only cause of giving her a serious thought. It is a new circumstance in romance, I acknowledge, and dreadfully derogatory of an heroine's dignity. But if it be as new in common life, the credit of a wild imagination will at least be all my own. You see how she ties it all in there, and she's so clever and such a good writer. Like, yes, yes, you're reading a novel, and yeah, this is a real-life scenario, and don't you know that you know, people who But this is everything that we talk about with Jane Austen is that she, this is why she's still relevant 200 years later is because she writes these characters that are real. And this is a perfectly legitimate basis for falling in love with someone. It is very attractive to have someone be in love with you. Um, And then once you kind of have that hmm, second look, then you see all these other things. And to be fair to you and in support of your point, um, she has certainly a generous heart and which is very different from Mrs. Bennett, and she's a lot smarter. Yeah, and, yeah, and then Mrs. So Bennett. This is why, okay, here's my thing about Catherine Moreland. Catherine is not dumb. I will absolutely counter that. Protest against she, that. She she reads novels, Kristen. <laughs> oh, that's right. Now that's how we no, know. Catherine she's is not it. dumb. She is, however, extremely naive, and she does not have real life experience. So she's not street smart. <laughs> she doesn't have street smart. She doesn't understand the, a lot of the bad in people. For example, she doesn't understand why Isabella would flirt with Captain Tilney when she's engaged to James, to Catherine's brother. And it's like, well, clearly he's hot, right? And he's rich. So. <laughs> yes, he's rich. Here is a perfect illustration of your, of your point, that her being naive and getting enlightened here. So what has happened in this passage Isabella has just gotten engaged to James Moreland, Catherine's brother. Isabella Thorpe is under the impression that the Morelands are rich. So James goes away. Catherine and Isabella are having a conversation. And Isabella is gushing about James and her pretend love for James. And she, well, maybe not totally pretend, but at least a little bit motivated by the love of money. And she says, oh, your brother, Catherine, he's so handsome. I just, I'm in love with him so much, this handsome man. And the book says, here Catherine secretly acknowledged the power of love. For though exceedingly fond of her brother and partial (laughs) to all his endowments, she had never in her life thought him handsome. (laughs) And then on the next page, Isabella is saying, 
you know, how can I expect that your parents will approve the match? Your brother, who might marry anybody. And it says, here Catherine again discerned the power of love. (laughs) (laughs) So here's here's my thesis about Catherine Morland. Catherine Morland is very smart. In fact, she does exchange witticisms with Henry Tilney often. Um, and she, when John Thorpe kind of clumsily proposes to her and she goes, I think that she understands what's going on and she's like kind of trying to give him the brush off nicely. She has excellent instincts as to character. She does have a kind of a flippy debit teenage <laughs> mind where she's read all these crazy stories, but I was the same way, honestly. Oh, yeah. I would create these weird scenarios. <laughs> she has an excellent heart. The times that she seems boneheaded are in reference to things having to deal with sex, Mm. are times when people make references to her being rich, which to be fair, she isn't. She doesn't know that everyone thinks she's rich. So when people make comments about that or kind of, you know, you know what I mean, right? (laughs) She's like, huh? She has no idea. She doesn't know that people think she's wealthy. So sex, money... And then, you know, if someone makes a joke about, like, oh, well, in Paris, blah, 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 she's like, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. So things you things know? go over her She head. lived a provincial life. Yes. But she's not dumb. Right. And she has good instincts. And she has that strong moral compass that every Austin heroine, except for Emma, <laughs> has. Um, well, yeah, Emma's also the, the only rich. That's right. Austin that's right. Heroine. That's right. And that's corrupted her. <laughs> it's corrupted her mind. Save it, Kristen, her Save it. Okay, we gotta save it. We gotta <laughs> save it. But we were talking about. So we talked about Catherine, and then we well, were also but let's just about- go to get back to Henry. Yes, there is. I mean, we're talking about a, a novel that was published in you know 18, December eighteen seventeen. So yes, there is that degree of misogyny. But I still adore him, and I think he's a wonderful person. And even when he finds out that Catherine is sneaking around his house thinking that his father has murdered his mother, which is pretty horrible, especially when he explains to her that I basically watched her die over a week. You know, it's pretty horrible. Um, And he forgives her. He just kind of says, why don't you think about what you were doing? It was very mansplaining. But still, like, think about where you are. We wouldn't let this happen. You were talking about the adaptation, and I think it's a good... um time here to mention that the adaptation was done by Andrew Davies. This is an early novel of Austen's. People feel that it has a little bit of a structural problem, that it sort of loses gas. It has a sort of a... I'd du- say pacing is an issue. It has sort of a double climax, where the first thing that happens is that Catherine admits that she believes, you know, that Mr. Hen- you know General Tilney has killed his wife. And Henry's like, oh, it's cool, and everything is resolved. And then the second dramatic thing that happens is that General Tilney kicks Catherine out of the house, and Catherine does not know why. Now, and I don't mean to contradict what you've said before about the fact that she's worried that General Tilney might have found found out about what she believed. That's written into the adaptation, but that's that's not really... She just slightly thinks about it, and then she goes, oh, no, I know Henry wouldn't have told Well, me. yeah, if you remember, though, um, because I had noted that difference when I was reading it, she knew Henry didn't tell him. Right. But she still is like, oh, my God, She's what ki- if he somehow yeah. found out? Well, that's true. Um, but she absolutely, I mean, I do agree with you, she absolutely knows... It kind of fleetingly crossed her mind, like, what if Henry told him she says no? And again, another good example of her having good instincts about people. I know he wouldn't do that. And what we know of his father, who's basically a tyrant, 
It's not like they sit down and talk about secrets to each other. Like <laughs> right. Both Eleanor and Henry really don't like their father. Right. He's a total jerk. And so even though she does feel a little convicted in her heart that, like, yes, she didn't behave very well by the general, general she's still resentful of the oh, fact yeah. that she he's, she's getting kicked out of his house. Well, Davies in his adaptation solves that structural problem by having Catherine tell Henry about her sub- suspicions, you know, Felicity Jones and J.J. Field, um, in the adaptation. She mentions, she admits it to Henry. Henry's mad. Yeah. And Henry leaves. And then that the night, next day, right? she gets yeah. kicked out. And she believes, she's like, Henry must have told your father mm-hmm. what I knew, what I suspected. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she says, I deserve it. I deserve to be kicked out. And she's much more um, convinced that it's the, the result of her own folly. And that sort of takes the storyline and makes a complete arc. So that by the time she co- goes home and Henry comes to her, that's when she feels the confidence that he's not mad at her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that double climax problem is sort of uh, resolved there. But the other thing it includes, which I did not mention, is that Davies is so brilliant because it came to him that um, when, especially early in the um, the adaptation in the movie, Catherine has fantasies that play out in her head. Now, this is not in the book. Instead, we have Austen telling us what a gothic novel would contain. Well, she does kind of, you know, it's not explicit, but she will say, you know, Catherine imagines. Oh, right. Deserted hallways, and when they're getting a tour of the house, and there's rooms that they don't, and hallways that don't take her down. It's like, oh, what horrors lie behind the doors and things like that. And I know where you're going, and I agree. Yeah, and the adaptation sort of fleshes those out and gives you the feeling that, a a, you know, an 18-year-old, girl is having and they're very sexualized Mm -hmm. it's an expression of Catherine's sexuality that she's having these fantasies and um davies really brought that out in a very funny very clever way um in a way that sort of hints at the hidden sexuality that's also in written into the book there's one scene for example where Catherine's reading the monk and we get a passage of the monk read out loud and Mm -hmm. it's a great passage I must possess you or die. <laughs> it shows Catherine sleeping sort of in her bed afterwards. She's Tossing sort of, and turning. She's sort of writhing, and it's clearly this expression of, you know, pent-up sexuality. Um, in the book, there is a scene where there's a storm going on outside, and the windows are rattling, and the bedclothes are, like, being blown around. And that is possibly... Catherine's fantasy of sex or, you know, Mm. masturbation there. And so Davies mirrored that in his adaptation. And um, I'm saying all this because Davies is a controversial figure in the adaptation world. He has succeeded beyond everybody's wildest dreams in adapting Pride and Prejudice and adapting Northanger Abbey. On the other hand, he has failed in the extreme when (laughs) when adapting Sense and Sensibility and uh, and Emma as well. He did both for the BBC ITV. Persuade. Did he do Persuasion? That I, one? I thought that was kind of terrible. That might have been more the direction. The camera if, work was not. I don't remember if he did that Persuasion or not. Okay. Actually, we have to look it up. Well, kind of, if we can talk a little bit about what you were just talking about, this about the sexuality in the book. Um, it's not explicit, obviously, because Catherine doesn't know what the hell is going on. <laughs> right. um, and the movie makes it a little more explicit. But there are things in here... 
um, like when she's walking with Isabella and there's these two horrid young men who are following us and like, we have to leave them, but like, Oh, but let's catch up. And pass oh, that's them. I mean, so funny. it's, it shows teenage girls being flirty and walking around. And this is the kind of stuff you would do uh, you, me at the mall, like in eighth grade, you oh, know, yeah. everybody did this. Mm-hmm. Oh, they need to stop staring at us. Why are they staring at us? Let's walk by them. Isabella played so amazingly by Carrie Mulligan is light years ahead of Catherine in her sexuality. And it's not, it's again, it's not explicitly stated what was going on with Captain Tilney and Isabella, but it is in the, in the adaptation in the book. It's not, but it's pretty clear that they were trying to get together. Yes. And that's sexual way. That's the kind of license that I think is totally appropriate to take in adaptations is to write in sexual scenarios where Austin couldn't, Mm -hmm. because obviously they were happening in Mansfield park, even though it's not written, I'm sure any, Anyone who adapts mm-hmm. it would see Fanny Price. Uh, would see Fanny Price seeing Mariah and Mr. Crawford kissing behind the curtains, going you know? into the ha ha. Yeah, <laughs> you know they. She would have seen I think that. every podcast now has to include a reference to the ha ha. <laughs> every yeah, we always as have a general rule. <laughs> um, you know, is it okay if I say a couple more things about Davies? I don't want to get off. No, absolutely. Your track. I so uh, the the novel is fantastic. Read the novel, but like we said, the the movie is great. Oh, it's I so love good. it. it it's my favorite after Pride and Prejudice. It's like I said, 90 minutes if you want that quick Austin, Austin hit. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, forget Kira Knightley. I mean, go as- for Northanger Abbey. It's wonderful. And it it actually to me feels like the most accurate representation of a of life at that time. People had sex, people flirted, teenagers walked around staring at each other. You know, it was crowded in the rooms. The people just don't line up in perfect lines and dance and there's all this room. It's so crowded. And this is in the novel as well. It's so crowded that Catherine and Mrs. Allen can barely get through. Yeah. And they don't know anybody and it's awkward and they're squeezed on the end of a table. It just feels very real. And the uh, the book says they can only see the high feathers of some (laughs) of the ladies. And did you notice in the adaptation, Mm -hmm. they actually, that's the same thing. They're getting pushed around and all they can see is the high feathers. When I saw that, I was like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) It's like someone actually read the book before they wrote the script. (laughs) And bravo to Davies for reading and understanding and adapting it perfectly. And so there is a book. It is called Among the Janeites. It's fantastic. Maggie actually recommended it to me. It's this woman, Deborah Yaffe, who um, is an Austin fan, and she went down the rabbit hole into the Austin L. Listserv and into Jasna, the Jane Austen Society of North America. She interviews many people, but some of two of the people that she interviews, I believe a married couple named George Justice and Devaney Lucer. And they're they've got to be British. <laughs> One of them is like works. I think it's Devony. Come on. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't even know. I don't even know. I had it's never... like Crispin Glovin Carter <laughs> is the most English name ever. I have. I have never um, heard that name before. I read this book. Oh, I don't know. Now we're going to get probably some email from like, uh, guys. <laughs> I'm named yeah. Devony, and I'm from Arkansas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, they speak as a double act uh, a lot of times, and. The act can be summed up as married couple fights about literature and you learn something in the process. And so Kristen's reading from the book Among the Janites. Yeah. Yes, Among the Janites. I just meant to quote that that's that's how they describe their act when they when they talk. But it's the essence, and this book is all about the conflicts that go on within Jasna and people who are into Austin, because not only are we interested in the books um, intellectually, we also love them very, very much on an emotional, spiritual, moral, you know, like every <laughs> level. And um, some some people are derided as being too 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 invested and too passionate. 
And um, one of the things that people fight about is Andrew Davies and his various adaptations failed and not failed. So George says this, this just encapsulates the entire Austin community in this one exchange. George Justice is talking about Andrew Davies. And he Wait, is, should we act this out? Should we take part? <laughs> yes. Okay. So you be George. Okay. Let's start right here. I don't think he's all that great. George said over dinner. Oh, George, Devaney sounded exasperated. You're just wrong about that. You're just wrong. You're wrong. I mean, I don't know how else to respond. <laughs> that tenor of that conversation <laughs> is so passionate and it's so true that when we argue about adaptations, that's the kind of worked up we get because we love the source material that much. And then later, George calls him a hack and calls him a hack (laughs) of B-plus quality with regard to his Emma adaptation, which I did not care for. In fact, in the Sense and Sensibility adaptation, and I don't want to go too far in the weeds, but I have a very dear friend who loves the um, Emma Thompson 1996 adaptation, which is a triumph. Well, because it's amazing. It's amazing. It is a triumph of adaptation. This is Ang Lee, right? Yes. I mean, it's... It's incredible. It's an amazing film. Davies said that his goal in adapting Sense and Sensibility was to make everybody forget the Ang Lee version. And it's such a stinker that even though it contains um, this actor who's in Downton Abbey, why can't I remember his name? He played Matthew. Oh. Dan Stevens. Yeah. Even though it contains hunky heartthrob Dan Stevens, my friend found out that it existed. And she's like, how is there a version of Sense and Sensibility that has Dan Stevens? He didn't even tell me. And I was like, girl. Girl, it's... <laughs> Sorry, it's not good. And she's like, I don't believe you. I'm going to watch it tonight. And I get this text like, this is the worst thing ever. <laughs> well, the Ang Lee Sense and Sensibility and the Andrew Davies Northanger Abbey have something in common in that the film improves upon aspects of the novels that are lacking. Uh, I mean, we love Jane Austen, but I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you Northanger Abbey's perfect. We just talked about there's some pacing issues. And like Kristen said, a good film can sort of make those, can brush through those issues. And Sense and Sensibility, I've read Sense and Sensibility. It's not my favorite. Um, the film is beautiful. It, it's really perfect. And I, people get on me for being hard on Austin adaptations. It's not the case at all. When Austin books it's, are it's a good adaptation, it can be a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I've watched that movie a bazillion times it's a part of my life that i treasure i treasure the mm-hmm. fact that that movie exists and god if they would if someone would just do a real mansfield park adaptation i could die happy you know i would watch it like every weekend like yeah. um, it'd be like harry potter uh deathly hallows part one oh yeah, yeah which, which I Kristen also... does watch every weekend. <laughs> probably not every weekend but for a while is watching it a lot <laughs> um but um, I didn't mean to get off the Northanger Abbey train. I have some- Well, I would just like to say that, I mean, my love of Henry Tilney as a character is definitely informed by my love of J.J. Field and his portrayal. His portrayal is fantastic. He totally captures the essence. Um, I have some parts flagged. At this point in the podcast, do you want to talk about a couple of favorite parts? Sure. And um, since I, I feel like we've gone over the major character arcs... Mm-hmm. Um, and you can tell me if you're interested in talking about a passage or not, because I have a lot of fla- them flagged. Here's here's a passage that um, is heart-meltingly adorable in the adaptation. It is when they are dancing together for the oh first time. Oh my god, time. I love this part. <laughs> Do you want to read it? Yes! Let's. Okay, I'll read it. You read it. So this is the one of the first times they're dancing. 
Um, and Helmy, uh, Henry says, I have hitherto been very remiss, madam, in the proper attentions of a partner here. I have not asked you how long you've been in Bath, whether you've ever been here before, whether you've been at the upper rooms, the theater, and the concert, and how you like the place altogether. I have been very negligent. And she says, you need not give yourself that trouble, sir. No trouble, I assure you, madam. Then, forming his features into a set smile and affectedly softening his voice, he added with a simpering air, "'Have you been long in Bath, madam?' "'About a week, sir,' replied Catherine, trying not to laugh. "'Really?' with affected astonishment. "'Why should you be surprised, sir?' "'Why, indeed,' said he in his normal tone. "'But some emotion must appear to be raised by your reply, "'and surprise is more easily assumed and not less reasonable than any other. "'Now let us go on. "'Were you never here before, madam?' "'Never, sir.' "'Indeed! Have you yet honoured the upper rooms? "'Yes, sir, I was there last Monday. "'Have you been to the theatre? "'Yes, sir, I was at the play on Tuesday. "'To the concert? "'Yes, sir, on Wednesday. "'And are you altogether pleased with Bath? "'Yes, I like it very well. "'Now I must give one smirk, "'and then we may be rational again.'" It's so cute. He's so cute. And in the in the movie, it's so cute. He says, "'And how do you find Bath? "'I like it quite well, sir.'" <laughs> Forgive me. I have been very remiss in the proper attentions of a partner. What are they? Oh, I ask you how long you've been in Bath. Have you been to the theatre, the concert, and so on? Wouldn't that be rather dull? Of course. We must do our duty. You ready? Yes. How long have you been in Bath, madam? Not long at all, sir. Were you never here before? Never, sir. Indeed. Have you been to the play? Not yet, sir. Astonishing. Concert? <laughs> no. Amazing. Now tell me, are you altogether pleased with Bath, madam? Yes. I like it very well. Excellent. I must give you one smirk, and then we can be rational again. <laughs> Not long at all, sir. Not long at all, sir. <laughs> and she plays along with him, and it's yeah. so cute. It's so cute, and the, the smirk, the affected smirk that J.J. Fields... I'm trying to give her. it to Kristen right now. <laughs> Oh God, it's adorable, and I think it plays it plays as well on the page. It's really cute. Yeah. Um, I I just imagine how hard it must have been to actually talk. I mean, Lizzie says it in Pride and Prejudice. You know, we should talk while we dance, and then we'll have the uh, what is it, Kristen? You know the line. We'll have the benefit of saying nothing at all, right? Uh, the advantage, the advantage of, of saying, saying as little, little as possible. possible. Um, and it's right after that where Andrew Davies gives Catherine a good zinger. Um, when, uh, when Henry Tilney says, um, you know, I, let me tell you what you're going to write in your journal tonight. You're going to write <laughs> yeah. about me. And she goes, indeed, I shall, I shall say no such thing. And he goes, well, then what shall you say? Wanting to hear about mm-hmm. himself. And she goes, perhaps I don't keep a journal at all. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and then smash like, cut <laughs> to her laying on her bed writing in her journal. <laughs> writing in her journal, yeah. <laughs> but the look he gives her is like, ah, you got me. In the uh, in the book, when she says, 
perhaps I don't keep a journal at all. She's sort of confused because he's telling her what she should write. And she's thinking, how does this guy, how does this guy even know I keep a journal? So she goes, how does he see into my soul? But perhaps I keep no journal. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time, it is a little bit of a zinger. When they're on their way to Northanger, he teases her. Yes. He plants an idea in her head that Northanger contains a uh, deep secret. Well, this is a perfect example of what we were talking about earlier, about how Jane Austen so well skewers the gothic novel conventions. And I think I emailed Kristen when I was reading the beginning of the book. And I told her something like the sarcasm is dripping off the pages (laughs) when she's describing Catherine Moreland and how she's decidedly not like a heroine. And yes, Jane Austen loves novels, but she also is kind of unrelenting in her criticism <laughs> of their structure. Yeah. And kind of the absolute ridiculousness. Yeah. So this is it. so are you going to read what Henry tells her? Would you like to? Yes. Read? Please I, read I was it. um he's teasing her. They're on their way to Northanger Abbey and he's like um, you know, are you prepared to encounter all of the horrors that a building such as what one reads about might produce? Have you a stout heart? Nerves fit for sliding panels and tapestry? But you may be aware that when a young lady is, by whatever means, introduced into a dwelling of this kind, she is always lodged apart from the rest of the family. (laughs) While they snugly repair to their own end of the house, she is formally conducted by Dorothy, the ancient housekeeper, up a different staircase and along many gloomy passages into an apartment that has never been used since some cousin or kin died in it about 20 years before. Can you stand such a ceremony as this? And then he goes on, he goes on and while. on. He spins this whole tale. This dark green purple velvet and presenting a funereal appearance in the bed and the, the chest that you can't open, um, which it actually happens to her. And then she says, oh, Mr. Telney, how frightful. This is just like a book. <laughs> But it cannot really happen to me. That's the joke. (laughs) (laughs) I am sure your housekeeper is not really Dorothy. (laughs) Well, go on. (laughs) She wants to hear the story. (laughs) So this is, and Kristen and I talked about this earlier, and we were just kind of getting set up to record, um, that there is, if you've ever tried to read the books that she references or kind of were the inspiration, um, they are really hard to get through for a modern reader. Really, really hard to get through. And there's one part in the very beginning of the book where Jane Austen, she just nails it. Um, where Catherine and Mrs. Allen are at the pump room and they've been in, they're in Bath a couple of days. They're kind of bemoaning their lack of acquaintance. It's like, this is kind of boring when you don't know anybody and you just kind of sit around and stare at people. Um, but that's when they run into Mrs. Thorpe, who's Isabella's mother, who is a longtime friend of Mrs. Allen, who they haven't seen each other for a long time. So Jane Austen uh, kind of sums up the Thorpe's family. And at the very end of chapter four, she says, This brief account of the family is intended to supersede the necessity of a long and minute detail from Mrs. Thorpe herself, of her past adventures and sufferings, which might otherwise be expected to occupy the three or four following chapters, in which the worthlessness of lords and attorneys might be set forth, and conversations, which had passed 20 years before, be minutely repeated. End of chapter. (laughs) Because that happens. If you've ever read... I read The Monk. um, I've read some other books. This is what happens. Mm -hmm. Someone will be... You'll meet someone in an inn, and they'll go, I'll tell you all about it. And then it's... (laughs) pages of unrelated story this person's story, story yeah. and you're just like tell me now what does this have to do with anything and she's just like look i'm not gonna do that 
to you. <laughs> Let me just tell you about Mrs. Thorpe. She talks about her kids. Boom. Boom. It's done. <laughs> it's so fresh and so so well written that it's so accessible even today. I, I just I love it. I loved it when you brought that up. Um, one of the things that's fascinating, though, is that when... So Maggie and I went on, uh, on a tour of Austin's various places that she lived in the UK... And I don't know if you remember our tour guide talking about a lord on a neighboring estate yes. mm-hmm. that he was a sadist. I mean, he broke a servant's legs or rebroke them after they were broken, and he sort of forced a woman into a marriage, and she wasn't really in her right mind. And he was a real-life gothic horror, and she, she didn't go that way. She had the real-life inspiration. But when... Catherine Moreland says to Henry Tilney, well, what if your dad killed your mom so inappropriately? He goes, consider that... Yeah, read that. Actually, do you have that passage marked? I think I might. I think that's a really important quote in the book. And not to say that horrible things didn't happen in the UK that time, that there weren't serial killers and there weren't people doing awful things. There's people doing awful things everywhere. But he kind of gives her a reality check. And I think it's, it's, it's very quotable, we'll say. Yes. And... Um... Henry is saying, you know, you're wrong. His value of her was sincere. His value of my mother was sincere. And she goes, I am very glad of it. It would have been very shocking if, and he says, if I understand you rightly, you have formed a surmise of such horror as I have hardly words to, dear Miss Moreland, consider the dreadful nature of the suspicions you have entertained. What have you been judging from? Remember the country and the age in which we live. Remember that we are English, that we are Christians. Consult your own understanding, your own sense of the probable, your own observation of what is passing around you. Does does our education prepare us for such atrocities? Do our laws connive at them? Can they be perpetrated without being known in a country like this, where social and literary intercourse is on such a footing, and where every man is surrounded by a neighborhood of voluntary spies, where the roads and newspapers lay open everything? Dearest Miss Moreland, what ideas have you been admitting? And she, with tears of shame, she ran off to her own room. And I just love this weird, we're English and we're Christians Mm -hmm. sort of defense when murders were definitely happening. (laughs) But again, I mean, she definitely has her head up in the clouds or up her ass, depending on how you want to (laughs) interpret it. And it's very much a, like, you better check yourself. Do you really think that, you know, some we he my murdered his wife or imprisoned her in the home? <laughs> you know, that it's crazy. Come on. Yeah, why would you tell him that too? She's just so well, she's in trying, her own well, mind. She also can't think of a reason for why what? she's <laughs> creeping out of his mother, his dead mother's uh, bedroom. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of I misplaced something. You know, no, I got nothing. I thought that your dad <laughs> killed your mom. <laughs> Sorry laying out there. Sorry. <laughs> She's not very good at uh, dissembling or artifice. You know, and then when she comes down to dinner, the only difference in his behavior to her was that he paid her rather more attention than usual. Catherine had never wanted comfort more, and he looked as if he were aware of it. So he sort of gets over his offense really quick and decides that, she, oh, poor little idiot. I well, like, she I make clearly her feel looks bad. really. I mean, he saw her leave crying, so then I bet he felt really bad about kind of. Yes. Not yelling at her, but definitely, you know, laying down the truth bomb. And then she sort of gets over it. And I talk, I've i been talking throughout these episodes of about things that are helpful to me in my life that I have taken from Austin. Things that are helpful and useful ideas. 
And what happens next with Catherine is that she actually gets over it. Mm-hmm. And it says um, she had nothing to do but forgive herself and be happier than ever. And when you're stupid, I, I feel like that haunts you, that memory haunts you for the rest of your life. And there's nothing you can do but forgive yourself. I definitely do that happy. all the time, where I put my foot in my mouth all the time, which I'm sure is a shock to all of our <laughs> listeners. Um, and I just, it's really hard for me to let things like that go. Or if I think I've hurt someone's feelings or um, hurt someone. You beat yourself up I, about it. like, want to die. I'm still thinking about, about stupid things I did 15 years ago. Like, it's still... And there's something that's so relatable because then what she says, she's talking about Catherine, and uh, it says, there were still some subjects, indeed, under which she believed her feelings must always tremble. The mention of a chest or a cabinet, for instance. And she did not love the sight of Japan in any shape. That's what the cabinet was made These out are of. references to, to earlier times when she thought there were secrets in the home and it ended up being something really stupid. <laughs> yeah, a locked cabinet or a big chest. Yeah. And um, even she could, she could allow that an occasional memento of past folly, however painful, might not be without use. But I feel like I can't have a conversation and hear a dropped reference to an artist or, um, you know, anything, any circumstance will take me back to the time I said something stupid. And then I have to relive it all over mm-hmm. again. And Austin clearly knows the pain of this, as I suppose we all do. Um, but it's nice to see someone write it down on the page and be like, no, we're, mm-hmm. we're all haunted by this stupid stuff we've done. But all you can do is forgive yourself yeah. and get over it. And I really like that um, inclusion. And I think that's a good example of Catherine's maturity through the novel. And also, her response to the whole getting kicked out thing, Eleanor is really upset when she has to tell... She comes to her room at, like, midnight. Eleanor comes to Catherine's room and says, so you got to be gone by 7 in the morning. And, of course, it's real, everyone's upset. Catherine's very upset. But by the end, she's reassuring Eleanor. And she's like, it's fine. I'll be ready. Send someone to come and get me to go down. I'll be ready. I'll get everything together. She's obviously mortified. She can't eat at breakfast. She's her, like, her heart is too full. She's so upset. But she's not scared about journeying by herself. I talked about that earlier, which I think is a big deal. Yeah. Traveling by yourself back then mm-hmm. would have been really inappropriate yeah. for a 17-year-old. And she's like, ain't no thing. She's got to transfer multiple times. But she's got a little money that Eleanor gave her. And she's a nice person, so people help her out. And it's no big deal. She's not worried about it. And that says a lot about her to yeah. me. Mm-hmm. She's not intimidated by that. Even her and remember, is this is this is a girl who before this, had never left the little village she was raised in. And now she's going on this 11-hour journey alone. And her mom is so proud of her when she gets home. I can't believe you managed... Let's talk about that. When she comes home, her mother's reaction is so funny because I relate to this. I was such a scatterbrain when I was a kid. And if people know me now, they might be surprised by that because I am kind of a type A. Yeah, super organized. Super organized. Um, but when I was a kid, uh, I was a mess. I was a mess. And I feel like Catherine's kind of like that. Do you have this flagged when she comes home? And her mother is like, I can't believe you didn't leave something. You didn't forget your hat or leave something that was in your pocket. Did you put something down somewhere? It's amazing to me that you didn't wander off in the countryside by when you were alone. 
well, continued her philosophic mother. I am glad I did not know of your journey at the time, but now it is all over. Perhaps there is no great harm done. It is always good for young people to be put upon exerting themselves. And you know, my dear Catherine, you were always a sad little scatterbrained creature, but now you must have been forced to have your wits about you with so much changing of chases and so forth. And I hope it will appear that you have not left anything behind you in any of the pockets. <laughs> Because that so would have been me. With me, it was my backpack. Mom, what's my backpack? <laughs> to this day, my brother will still say, I do not know how one person could lose their backpack so much. <laughs> so when I came home from college, I kind of had my act together. On winter break, my mom was like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> I was also going to say about Catherine returning home. Oh, one thing that I think is so adorable about Henry Telney is it's true he really does love her. And after they get engaged... Their um their excuse to be alone is that they're walking to Mr. and Mr. Mrs. Allen's house. So then they get there. Oh, and- can you talk the part, though, where he says, you know, oh, are the Allens in? Perhaps you could show me. Like, <laughs> let's be alone. And the mom gets it. She understands. Like, well, he probably has some things he wants to tell Catherine in private. But the sister is hilarious. Uh, Catherine's younger sister is like, you can see their house from here. <laughs> and Henry is like, ugh. <laughs> um yes after so it's getting awkward in the drawing room henry has arrived after a couple of minutes of unbroken silence henry turning to Catherine for the first time since her mother's entrance asked her with sudden alacrity if mr and mrs allen were now at fullerton and on developing from amidst all her perplexity of words in reply, the meaning which one short syllable would have given immediately expressed his intention of paying his respects to them, and with a rising color, asked if she would have the goodness to show him the way. "'You may see the house from this window, sir,' was the information on Sarah's side, which produced only a bow of acknowledgement from the gentleman (laughs) and a silencing nod from her mother." For Mrs. Moreland, thinking it probable as a secondary consideration. Why are you winking at me, Mama? What am I to do? <laughs> Wink at your child with a notion. Why should I, I be winking at my own daughter, pray? <laughs> but now that you mention <laughs> puts me in mind. I do have something I would speak to you about. It's kind of amazing to me that anybody back then got engaged. Because you had to be alone to ask... But it was improper to be alone. So it was always these, like, machinations that occurred to kind of get your sweetie alone, away from the family, to where you could actually ask them to marry you. You know, and Austin very rarely writes any actual dialogue for the proposal. Mm-hmm. She always pulls that. back. Why do you think that is? That's kind of the money shot these days, right? Yes. I think it is out of partially out of modesty Partially because it's a situation she has never been in and thus never observed and then Mm -hmm. perhaps does not trust herself to write convincingly. Um, But when you say modesty, like even when it's just on the page, it's kind of such a private thing. Yes. That it shouldn't be. Yeah. Yes. It's too. Yes. It's a very private thing. And I think also that um, she shied away from being overly emotional I mean, I think everybody did at the time they valued, you know, tranquility of their characters or whatever. And perhaps she didn't want to show herself in the compromising position. Like today, an author writing a sex scene, Mm -hmm. you know, like um, it would be very difficult for me to write a sex scene and know that all of my parents and everybody would read it. And um, even though other authors did it, I think she was just, she just flinched away from it. 
But she did write the letter at the end of Persuasion, which is the exception to all of this. Mm -hmm. And that is a very romantic letter. And uh, so I certainly don't know. That's just my guess. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you think that sounds plausible or not. It sounds fine, too. It's always, it's it's just one of those things where I have definitely noticed it and kind of always wondered. Um, But I just also thought it might be a difference between a modern reader and a reader of the time. I didn't know if it was typical. Um, it's kind of like if you ended the movie without the leads kissing, it'd be like, what is this bullshit? Uh, yeah. like, I sat through this movie and I don't even get to see them make out. Um, um, but I didn't, it could be that it was just not as that's genre. Adaptations can be very cringe inducing when you watch them and it's the script writer, the screenwriter who's had to fill in that dialogue. Because Austin's dialogue is so frequently, consistently used in all adaptations because it's great. Why, why fix what isn't broken? Mm-hmm. But, but she doesn't give you anything. Exactly. And so um, Davies had to extemporize, and he did a fantastic job. And he does so here as well. But I actually really loathe the um, sort of proposal scene in the uh, Gwyneth Paltrow 1996 Emma mm-hmm. with Jeremy Northam, mm-hmm. where he actually says... Perhaps it is our imperfections which make us so perfect for mm-hmm. one another. And that's such a facepalm, stupid, Austin would never have written that, yeah. trite, packaged up in a mm-hmm. bow. And but if we're going to talk about screenwriters inserting clunkers, there is one thing in Northanger Abbey where Henry comes back to the house and Catherine is like, I was so wicked and so stupid. Because remember, in the adaptation, they have not yet dealt with the fact that she... Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... She says, I was so stupid and so wicked. And he was like, I was angry, but that is long past. You were right. The general did drain the life out of my mother oh, yeah. with his coldness and oh, his cruelty. and earlier he talks about how there are other forms of vampirism. vampirism. That's right. And so that's that's stuck in there by Davies, which is fine. It's a little hint. But um, when Henry Tilney comes to her, he says, no vampires, no blood. The truest crimes are the crimes of the heart. And I'm like, oh, thanks, Davies. Thanks for packaging <laughs> us all up. And so, you know, that's very much on a platter. Doesn't Austin herself say at the end, though, that she does, it, it, as the narrator, come out and say that while he was not the kind of horrible person that she thought he was, he was his own type of horrible? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, he, he Davies had to write in sort of a vampirat vampirism sort of concept to tie it into the whole gothic theme and that's and that's fine it's fine it's really fine i'm not trying to be hard on davies so he he had to tie it all up with a bow to help us understand all of the themes and how oh here we go i found it huh? um again sorry was listening all right. <laughs> <Lol>. uh, <laughs> uh, so this is at the end of chapter 30 um, when she's basically summing up what Henry tells Catherine when right after they get engaged about why the general kicked her out. And she says, I have united for their case what they must divide for mine. Catherine, at any rate, heard enough to feel that in suspecting General Tilney of either murdering or shutting up his wife, she had scarcely sinned against his character or magnified his cruelty. So even though he didn't do those exact things, he's still kind of an awful guy. Oh, yeah. And they get um, they get engaged, and I just thought it was so cute the way that they get engaged because they do it on their walk to the Allens, and then by the time they get to the Allens, they're engaged, and so Catherine can't say anything because she's so happy, 
And it says, Henry talks at random without sense or connection. <laughs> and he's happy, too. And I just think that's so romantic. That's yeah. one of the, like, He's basically know. babbling. They're both really, really excited. <laughs> without sense Henry or Tully is just adorable. <laughs> he's just adorable. And that, that shows his enthusiasm to be married to her. And, and that makes it, me feel, like, a little bit, like, it, it really is romantic. Yeah. Um, and the very last thing that I want to uh, say is that there's a really funny aside about novels, um, a joke about writing and reading, where um, Austin has said they did get engaged, but they can't yet get married because the general hasn't given his consent. The, the, um, the Morelands, their only condition is that the general doesn't have to support the match. He doesn't have to be like, I approve. He does have to consent, though. They don't want them to get married without Henry's father kind of tacitly being on board. Yes. And it, so it's talking about their anxiety, uh, Henry and Catherine's anxiety. And it says, the anxiety, which in this state of their attachment much must be the portion of Henry and Catherine, and of all who loved either as to its final event, can hardly extend, I fear, to the bosom of my readers, who will see in the tell-tale compression of the pages before them that we are all hastening together to perfect felicity. I love that. It's like, you know the end is coming. There's only a couple pages left. It's all going to work out. It's all going to be fine. <laughs> you know it. I know it. This we all know it. This is just like that scene in The Princess Bride when the, she's in the water and there's the eels and he goes, she doesn't get eaten at this point. And he's, and he's like, what? I just want you to know, you look nervous. She doesn't get eaten at this point. I wouldn't say I was nervous. It's uh, Austin did it first. Yeah. <laughs> Which was just so cute. So I think our takeaway is that Northanger Abbey is kind of a lighter fare from Austin, a delightful send-up of gothic novel conventions, while also telling you it's okay to read those type of books. Um, if you don't have time or the inclination to read the book, we both highly recommend the uh, BBC adaptation. Great. And you will love J.J. Field, and you will stock his IMD pa- IMDb page like I do. <laughs> nice. It's true. <laughs> you might recognize him from Captain America. He has a minor the role. First Avenger. He plays the <laughs> British one with the beret. <laughs> Who's in uh, Steve's crew? I think about what else he's been in. Uh, he was um, in the Ruby and the Smoke. Yeah, but oh, I don't. The first one, yes, with Billy Piper. But then don't watch the second one because spoiler, it doesn't end well for him. Oh, oh. I did not forgive. Oh no, the show. <laughs> oh no, he just. Oh, oh he's my in god, Austin we're an idiot. Yeah, he was in Austin Land. <laughs> Holy shit! This is why Kristen and I. Well, this is why I made Kristen go to this movie because he plays the like romantic lead. In Austin Land, which is kind of a really cute, frothy, ultimately stupid um, film. But he's great in it. Yes, he's good. And I went in preparing to be offended by portrayal of Austin fans. And I came out just thinking he was really cute. Yeah. And he is, um, he's, he's just, just delightful. Great. He's delightful. Yeah. He tried, he, he, he it's not quite as delightful because he has to play more of a Darcy character than yeah. a Tilney character. So for me, the, the real fix is always going to be... Northanger Abbey. I love the part at the end where this is in Austin land where he shows up at her apartment and he's like, I love you. And she's like, 
um, I don't need you to save me. And he goes, uh, did it ever occur to you that maybe I need you to save me? And I was like, oh my God. Hello, Darcy. Hi, I'm Darcy. Please save me. Shut up. This is great. <laughs> I didn't mean to put it down like that. I just meant to yeah. say, like, that's that's how they all Yeah, it's like, it's not all about you, girl. <laughs> and I would have said, spoilers, but hey, come on. We all know that they're going to get together from the very first, yeah. when you buy your ticket, you're signing up for that ride. And also, Brett is in it from Flight of the Concords. Yes, yes. playing a really weird, I guess, the Wickham role. Yeah. But mm-hmm. like, totally randomly. <laughs> um, in his little accent. <laughs> well, you probably noticed that the conversation tonight was slightly more lucid than normal. And that's <laughs> because we're actually not having our usual wine. So there is no end of the podcast. This is what we were drinking. And it's, as I said, we're coming off the holiday weekend. I've imbibed too much. Kristen, last night... I believe. Yes, I was drunk as a skunk. She had a whole bottle. <laughs> so she's good. I walked in and I was like, oh, did we want to? And she's like, nope. <laughs> Not tonight. Yeah. Um, so sorry we don't have any wine to recommend. Yeah. Alrighty. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. See you next time. Bye. Happy reading. <laughs>